How would you respond if you were arrested by the religious police? They drag you away, beat you bloody, and knock out 13 of your teeth. It happened to today's guest, and that was just the beginning of his torture. Why was he so hated? And how did he endure? We'll ask those questions and a whole lot more coming up. This is The Land and the Book. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, lifelong student of the Middle East. I'm John Geiger, and Israel has certainly been on all our minds these past months, many of us struggling with questions about what to think, what to feel. And in the midst of all this, God's heart for the Jewish people remains unchanged. He is faithful to his chosen people. That's right, John. And as the year is drawing to a close, our friends at Life and Messiah would like to help you better connect with this crucial aspect of God's character. They're offering their new book, Sharing God's Heart, to land in the book listeners. This 30-day guided reflection will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles written by Life and Messiah staff provide insight into Jewish life and culture. They can help prepare you to share with your friends the peace of Messiah they so desperately need. If you'd like one of these insightful books for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your copy. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Well, let's turn to our look at current events from the Middle East. Of course, this past week, Israel and Hamas arranged a temporary pause or ceasefire to allow for the release of hostages. That's our big story. How many were actually released, Charlie? What now happens to the rest? And will the fighting resume, we're wondering? Or could this actually be the beginning of a a process to end the whole conflict? Yeah, after 49 days of fighting, the guns went silent as that pause went into effect. But from Israel's perspective, the pause is only temporary. Over the initial four days, 50 Jewish hostages were released in exchange for 150 Palestinian women and children jailed for terrorism. In addition, at least 16 others were released, including a Russian-Israeli, 14 Thai workers, and a Filipino worker. Israel and Hamas then agreed to extend the pause to allow for additional exchanges of hostages, with Israel continuing to say it would resume its military operation once these pauses are over. Now, there are still at least 150 thought to be held by Hamas. Israel doesn't know how many of them are alive and how many might already be dead. Prime Minister Netanyahu said Israel intends to fulfill all three of its goals, the elimination of Hamas, the return of all captives, and making sure Gaza never again becomes a threat. Now, following this pause in fighting, Israel is going to face several headwinds going forward. The first will be increased international pressure to declare a permanent ceasefire. The second is going to be the logistical difficulties if they expand the conflict into the southern half of the Gaza Strip. More Hamas fighters are still located there, and that's also where most of the population of Gaza is now residing. And the third headwind they face is financial. The war is disrupting Israel's economy while adding to its debt. The Central Bank of Israel cut its growth forecast because of the war's impact and urged the government to reduce non-essential items in the 2024 budget, including discretionary coalition funds. Now, the coalition did approve a new war budget, but they also unlocked previously frozen funds, causing friction within the war cabinet itself. Those changes now head to the Knesset for its deliberation. And yet, in spite of all these problems, Israel says it's committed to putting an end to the threat of Hamas and to get all its citizens back, no matter what the cost. Charlie, uh, those of us who are less nuanced in Middle East affairs say, why not just line up every F-16 in the Israeli Air Force, every tank they have, and say to Hamas, you have 
12 hours to uh, return all hostages or else everything is coming at you. Uh, the basic problem is that Hamas is hidden among the population uh, of Gaza. They're hidden in those tunnels. And to go after Hamas has caused the uh, death of many innocent, as we would say, civilians in Gaza. Uh, certainly Israel is committed to fighting a war as ethically as it can, which means trying to keep the civilians uh, from being hurt. Uh, so the more they would go after Hamas in an indiscriminate fashion, the more Israel could ultimately be charged with war crimes. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, helping us understand all that's happening in the Middle East. Well, in addition to the conflict with Hamas, Israel is also experiencing problems with Hezbollah, the Houthis, Iran, and Turkey. How do all these different issues intersect? At its heart, people need to understand this is a religious struggle. That's where everything intersects. Hamas's charter, its statement explaining why it exists, says its goal is to liberate all of Palestine from the river to the sea and to make it an Islamic state under Sharia law, with Jerusalem as its capital. In fact, the very name Hamas is an Arabic acronym for Islamic Resistance Movement. Hamas is an outgrowth of the Muslim Brotherhood. Another outgrowth of the Muslim Brotherhood is the Justice and Development Party, which is the ruling party of Turkey. Now, that's why Erdogan is so supportive of Hamas. In response to the war between Israel and Hamas, Erdogan delivered an address to the Turkish parliament, and he said, Israel's a terrorist state that would soon be destroyed. In fact, a quote from him was, you can have as many nuclear bombs as you want, but you're on your way out. Now, while Hamas and Turkey represent Sunni Islamic fundamentalism, the other side of the theological coin is Iran, Hezbollah, and the Houthis, who represent Shiite Islamic fundamentalism. The Shiites and Sunnis disagree on several major theological points, but they all agree that the Jewish state of Israel can't exist long-term in the Middle East. Now, while Iran has helped Hamas, it's the main champion and sponsor of Hezbollah and the Houthis. As they work to develop nuclear weapons and the means to deliver them, they're using Hezbollah along with Hamas to tie down Israel and drain its financial and military resources. Now, all this can sound discouraging until you remember the promises God has made to Israel. In describing the events of the last days, God said in Zechariah 12, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. But then he adds, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. And he also says there, I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah. Israel might be outnumbered, but with God on their side, they're not outgunned. Well, it's now officially winter in Israel, and the Bible pictures rain as a blessing. So I have to ask, how much has Israel been blessed thus far? <laughs> Actually, a fair amount. The first major storm of the season came through two weeks ago and was followed this past Sunday and Monday by another less powerful rain event. The first storm set records at some reporting locations in northern Israel. One spot broke a 73-year-old record for rain intensity in a one-hour period. Wow. Uh, streets uh, and some from Haifa all the way down to Jerusalem experienced flooding. Now, to give an idea of the strength of that first storm, Jerusalem ended up with 200% of their normal year-to-date rainfall and 14% of what they expect to receive during the entire winter season just in that one storm. Tel Aviv ended up at 28% of what they would expect in a normal winter season from that one storm. The second storm dropped an additional quarter of an inch of rain in Jerusalem and almost an inch and a quarter up on the Golan Heights, where they've received already over six inches of rain this winter. Now, last year, Israel experienced as a whole a normal amount of rainfall, but much of it fell in the southern part of the country. 
Ideally, they like to receive more rain in the north, where it can help fill the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee. These first two storms provided a good soaking for northern Israel. Now, that's not helpful for the soldiers up north protecting Israel against Hezbollah, but it is good for the country as a whole. Uh, Right now, the Sea of Galilee is about nine feet below its upper red line, which is when it's totally filled. It should now begin rising over the coming days and weeks. All in all, John, it's a promising start to the winter rainy season. Uh, Let's just hope it continues. Radiocarbon dating tests done at the site of ancient Gezer are said to prove the biblical account of the city's history. What exactly did the testing show, and does it indeed match the biblical account, Charlie? The basic answer is that it sort of matches. It also shows the limitations of carbon-14 dating. The excavators focused on one specific area excavated over a multi-year period. They had collected organic matter, primarily burned olive pits, found in specific archaeological layers. They sent those samples to be carbon-14 dated, and some items do seem to correspond to the biblical account. For example, they found a destruction layer roughly corresponding to the time the Bible says an Egyptian pharaoh destroyed Gezer and gave it as a dowry for the marriage of his daughter to Solomon. And a subsequent destruction layer corresponds roughly to the destruction of the city by Pharaoh Shishak, who's mentioned in the Bible in connection with the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. But the authors of the study are very careful not to say the findings, quote, prove the Bible. In fact, they tend to see Egyptian monuments and texts as being more reliable. They see the biblical text as being written centuries later and thus less authentic. Now, for those of us who accept the reliability of the Bible, that's a serious flaw in the study. There are also other limitations. Uh, The data comes from a specific area within this rather large site. So I think we need to be cautious in drawing sweeping conclusions from just that one area. Also, carbon-14 dating can provide an approximate date, but it's not exact. A range of plus or minus 20 years can make a huge historical difference. Uh, The bottom line is the study is interesting and even helpful, but it can't really be used to prove or disprove the biblical account when it comes to Gezer. Thanks, Charlie. And that's a look at current events. Well, how would you respond if you were arrested by the religious police? They drag you away, beat you up, and knock out not just one or two teeth, but 13. That actually happened to today's guest, Dr. Ahmed Yoktan. We'll talk to him, and we'll enjoy answering your Bible questions in another segment. And Charlie's devotional is December 7th, a day of infamy. We're heading to Zechariah, all of that, and a whole lot more on today's edition of The Land and the Book. How would you respond if you were arrested by the religious police? They drag you away, beat you bloody, and knock out 13 of your teeth. It happened to our guest, and that was just the beginning of his torture. Why was he so hated, and how did he endure? We'll ask those questions and more coming up. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, welcoming you back to our program. And before we get started with today's guest, Let's think about some creative ways that we can show the love of Christ to our Muslim friends. How do I start talking to a Muslim? Fair question. Let's ask Stefano Fair, who's president of Call of Hope. How do we start? Well, we start talking to a Muslim as we would start talking to anybody else. We start off um, telling him about our life. Maybe we start off talking with him about the weather, about the storm coming. 
we just show him that we are interested in him. And, and John, so many people tell me they come to the West and they feel these Americans, these Europeans, they are not interested in me. Mm. Tell them that you are interested in them. And then they will ask you also about your faith. Just be open. Okay, we're going to share life with them. And that's going to sort of share our love for them. And then eventually maybe sharing Jesus with them. Absolutely. That's it. Stefano Fear is with Call of Hope U.S. Great thoughts. Thanks for sharing. He was born in Mecca, raised in hate, and trained for terror. Dr. Ahmed Jaktan is a medical doctor who turned evangelist. His father is a mufti in Mecca, Saudi Arabia, and once set to bring jihad to the world, Ahmed came to know Jesus Christ as Savior and now works to bring true peace in Jesus to Muslims and lost people everywhere. It is a high honor to have you on the program today, Dr. Jaktan. It's my honor to be with you today. You say your father was a mufti in Mecca. What does that mean, and how big a deal was that for you growing up? That is a big deal because a mufti is someone who has a Islamic legal opinion to rule on people's life. Think of it as rabbi who tell people what's lawful and unlawful. Growing up, you know, I saw people's respect to my dad, and they follow exactly to the letter what he's saying. By the age of 13, you could recite the entire Quran word perfect, but it wasn't so much a love for the book that drove you as it was a fear of punishment. Describe what happened to you as a young boy when you maybe made mistakes with your recitation. Yeah, it's really sad that, you know, growing up, I, I had to uh, memorize the entire Quran out of fear. So if you made a mistake, even the slightest mistake into the intonation of a word or pronunciation, they would take you to the front of the mosque. Um, they took me there and they placed me on the ground, and my feet on a high chair, and they would lash the back of my feet until I can't, you know, even walk back home. I had to crawl that day. But um, now I memorize the Bible, the Word of God, because a man should not live by bread alone, but with every word comes out of the mouth of God. How did all of this frame your own assessment of Islam? Did you ever ask yourself, boy, isn't there another less stressful religion or way of life out there? Well, in Islam, you can't question. So you have to follow exactly what you've been told or else you'll be punished and you'll be taken away from the community. So I had not had the chance to question. Five times he faced death, but God spared him so that he could tell Muslims and lost people worldwide about how Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Dr. Ahmed Jaktan is our guest today on The Land and the Book. You eventually experienced a vision of Jesus himself. How old were you when that happened, and what were the circumstances? I was at the beginning of my 20s when that happened. And um, it was actually because of prayer. So um, I want to ask the audience today, are you praying for the loss that you know? If you think that God cannot bring them to himself, then think of me, someone from Saudi Arabia. So the pastor of the Auckland Baptist Tabernacle, he prayed, you know, that, Lord, you have sent us people from Iraq, Iran, and other nations, but none from Saudi Arabia. Lord, we uh, dare to pray today that you'll send us someone from Saudi and after two weeks from there, I had a dream, and I showed up at that church. And what was your reaction to what you heard and saw? I was afraid. 
at the same time, it, it was inviting for me to follow each step. I uh, did not have a chance to even fathom the momentum of what happened to me, but it was God's planning and guidance from the start to finish. In your book, From Mecca to Christ, you reference uh, the time when the pastor invited you to his home for dinner. And uh, initially you turned him down, but then you did go, and uh, you were pretty sure you were going to be poisoned to death. Uh, That seems a little bit shocking, but from your own admission, you, you said, well, that's maybe what our side would do in a situation if it were reversed. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, it's unfortunate in the fundamental Islamic teaching, uh, which thankfully not practiced by many Muslims today, um, fundamentalists believe that we are going to heaven by the blood of someone. That's why 9-11 happened. It's, you know, based on chapter number uh, 9 of the Quran, verse 111, which you are going to heaven only by the blood of someone else. Thankfully now I know that I am redeemed by the blood of Jesus. But I was hesitant, thinking that he is in his old age and he is going to end well by uh, killing me so he can get to heaven by my blood. Thankfully, later on, I heard that Jesus said, love your enemies. You became a Christian under this pastor. What was that experience like? Um, It was wonderful because this pastor understood the words back and forth, and he also knew how to speak to someone like me from Islam. So he began where I was and took me in a journey to know Jesus. And this is where I am now. I am here now to know Christ and make him known and help others do the same. Armed with a green New Testament, you returned to your home in Saudi Arabia full of hope, but then that Bible was discovered. What happened next with your brothers? At that time um, in Saudi, we still had the religious beliefs and um, it was not allowed to have Bibles in Saudi. They were deeply ashamed and dishonored for me to bring the Bible into Saudi Arabia. And they uh, took it, they beat me, and they uh, later on they disowned me because of my faith in Christ. How difficult was it for you to later discover it was your own mother who ordered the attack? It was very difficult, but at the same time, verses from the Quran. Uh, came back to me uh, where she had to do it. Otherwise, she will not be faithful to Allah, the God of the Quran. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, joined by Dr. Ahmed Jaktan. And uh, we're, we're hearing the unfolding story of his remarkable journey toward Jesus today on The Land and the Book. Ultimately, uh, the situation got more tense with your family, to the point that your father shoved an AK-47 assault rifle at your face and shouted, quote, Do you think you can shame me in front of our family? If you don't recant, I'll put these 30 bullets into your head. How did you respond? I was terrified. You know, here's an AK-47. I am new. I'm a baby in Christ, um, following Jesus, and I told him I'll do whatever he he wants, you know, an AK-47 to my head. Thankfully that um, I know now that nobody can take me from Jesus' hand or the Father's hand. Kicked out of your home, that was next, you shared your faith with a man who faked interest in your testimony. But then, after he called the religious police, you were hauled away and severely beaten, 13 teeth, bashed out of your mouth. 
How did you manage to endure all of that? I, uh, I, I couldn't endure all of that without my faith and trust in Christ Jesus and the Word of God that I treasure uh, in my heart. And that kept me sane through the whole process. Um, it, it was sad, but it's expected from those who follow the darkness and under the, uh, the curtain that Satan is blinding their, their eyes. They would go to such measures to um, basically quiet the voice of truth. But I'm thankful that the Lord was with me through it all. Yeah, 13 teeth bashed out of your mouth was just the beginning. You experienced many beatings and whippings, and then they jammed salt into your bloody wounds. At a point, you just wanted to go home and be with Jesus. So what got you through? What got me through is uh, remembering Paul also endured all those suffering as well for the sake of the gospel, and he took delight, knowing that whatever we have now is, uh, is not going to last. And, um, you know, those verses from 2 Corinthians 4 made me focus my eyes on what is going to last forever. You know, I wonder, why don't stories like yours, and you've written it in a book, you share it, I'm sure, in many different forums and places, why don't stories like yours change the American media's perception of Islam being a, quote, religion of peace? I think our voices are being squished (laughs) Um, nowadays, and um, we are not allowed to uh, share our insights of what uh, true Islam is uh, in a favor of um, other movements in the U.S. But, um, you know, the light shine in the darkness, and nothing can make that light go away. Yeah. Thanks for being with us today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Our guest, Dr. Ahmed Jaktan who is from Saudi Arabia. Uh, You know, as you look at the passage of time, I'm curious, have you had any communication in the years following all of this turn of events with your family, your brothers, for example, your mother, your father, any communication at all? And if so, how would you describe that? Unfortunately, there was none after they took it as uh, I have ashamed them. And um, they cut me off completely in obedience to Allah's commandments in the Quran but nothing even on Facebook or a text or an email or a quick phone call, nothing. Nothing at all, like I have never existed. So talk about your ministry today. How would you describe that? Today we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with Muslims here in the United States and across the world, especially in Saudi Arabia, in Mecca, Saudi Arabia. We uh, help to mobilize believers to go and share the gospel. Because, you know, this is God's plan from the beginning. God has plan A, there is no plan B, which go ye and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them. So um, we teach nowadays online. We, um, you know, evangelize on the streets in the U.S. and uh, one-on-one as well. Do you ever go to Saudi Arabia and uh, minister there? Uh, They would love to have me cut to pieces. Uh, Not yet, but in God's timing, (laughs) I will. So what kind of a response are you getting from this online teaching from those who are in Saudi Arabia and other rather fundamentalist Islamic nations? You know, they have been told the Bible was corrupt, and uh, we were able to show them that the Bible is true, and it's never been corrupted. It's the Word of God, and God is able, more than able, to keep His Word. Some angry responses, and many were amazed by John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
They have never heard that before. How can listeners be more effective in caring about Muslims in this country? What are we doing maybe that we should stop? I mean, you've been here for some years now. You've observed how followers of Jesus typically relate to Muslims. What should we stop doing or what should we start doing? What are your thoughts? I would say we should start praying. You know, this is how I came to the Lord Jesus is through prayer. So we should start with a prayer for the Muslims' friends and families. But then that should not stop us from going across the the road to a Muslim friend or across the table and share the gospel with them. And I think the best way is to meet them where they are and uh, to build on, on there with the Word of God. I want to invite you to pray a prayer in Arabic for someone who is listening right now who doesn't know Jesus. All kinds of reasons that uh, people tune in, and all of that, of course, by the hand of God himself. Would you pray a brief prayer for them that they would come to know Isa? Sure. يأتي إلى محبتك ومغفرتك وصلي يا رب أن تفتح أعينهم تفتح الطريق إليهم يا رب إذا لم يستطيعوا أن يسألوا أحد أن تبعث إليهم أحد لكي يسألوا وصلي يا رب أن تحل السلام على قلوبهم جميعا باسم يسوع المسيح وصلي وأطلب دائما وأبدا أمين آمين Well, thank you for this conversation. Uh, the book is fantastic from Mecca to Christ. I tried to scan it but was unable had to actually read it. <laughs> And you'll enjoy it as well. It's a great journey. A link to the book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Stick around. Bible questions and answers next on The Land and the Book. Thanks for your company today at The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. You know, we do what we do for the glory of God, obviously, but it's for your edification, for your growth as a believer. And unless you and I are regularly in the Word, exploring the Word, and understanding it properly, well, we'll go a hundred different directions, all of them wrong, right? That's why it's a great idea when you have a question to dig deep and maybe share that with us here at The Land and the Book. Again, I'm John Geiger, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Charlie, I see your Bible's open and a rather generous-sized stack of questions. There's never a shortage. There's never a shortage, and that is terrific because I love questions. They let us know where our listeners are, and frankly, they're fun to answer. Okay. Well, before we get to the first question, this quick thought, Israel has been on all of our minds these past months. Many of us have been struggling with questions of what to think and feel. And in the midst of all this, God's heart for the Jewish people remains unchanged. He is faithful to his chosen people. Yes, and as this year is drawing to a close, our friends at Life and Messiah would like to help you better connect with this crucial aspect of God's character. They're offering their new book, Sharing God's Heart, to Land in the Book listeners. This 30-day guided reflection will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles written by Life and Messiah staff provide insight into Jewish life and culture. They can help prepare you to share with your friends the peace of Messiah they so desperately need. If you'd like one of these insightful books for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your copy. That's lifeinmessiah.org. All right, let's dig right into our questions for the day. 
starting with James, who asks, is the time from Abraham to the Lord Jesus approximately the same time as from the Lord Jesus to now in years, meaning approximately 2,000 years? And that's generally true. Uh, Abraham was born about 2166 B.C. and entered Canaan when he was 75 years old, so about 2091 B.C. Jesus was born sometime around 6 to 4 B.C., and the crucifixion and resurrection likely took place in A.D. 33. So from the time of the birth of Abraham to the birth of Jesus, it's about 2160 years. And from the birth of Jesus till today is about 2030 years. Another question, is it true that the Hebrew letter Vav, which has the sound of W, has the numeric value of 6? And if so, would WWW then mean 666? Well, Hebrew numbers are written using the letters of the alphabet. So the number 6 was the sixth letter of the alphabet, which is Vav. Now, while some have pronounced this with a W sound, most believe the letter was pronounced with a V sound rather than a W. And as a result, I don't see a connection between the WWW of the World Wide Web and 666, since the Hebrew letter being written three times would more likely be pronounced like V, V, V. All right, interesting. This question from Bob, and uh, he wants to understand the proper scope of interpretation. He says, I used to read Matthew 5, 18 and 2 Timothy 3, 16, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 as basically saying the same thing about the inspiration of the Hebrew Scriptures. But am I wrong? Is 2 Timothy 3.16 evidence that Paul identified a list of authorized scrolls? Is 2 Peter 1 related only to Hebrew prophecy? What do you think? Yeah, and these are crucial passages, so let me go through each one separately and uh, try and help here. Uh, Matthew 5.18, I believe Jesus' reference there to the law should be understood in light of what he just said in the previous verse. He said, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then when he references the law in verse 18, it's just simply a summary of what he was just saying. That is, it's intended to include the prophets. And that also makes sense since he's describing his role there as fulfilling the word in verse 17. And then he says it's all going to be accomplished or come to be in verse 18. So I think that verse, what he's really giving in the larger context, you can't limit it to simply saying he's only saying the first five books of Moses are the ones that are inspired. Now, in 2 Timothy 3.16, the word scripture there does indeed refer to the authoritative books of the Old Testament. And a good way to test that is to see how the word scripture is used throughout the New Testament. For example, in Luke 24, 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So the scriptures are parallel to Moses and the prophets, which is the way they would describe the Old Testament in that day. The 2 Peter 1, 19-21 passage, Peter's referring there primarily to the Old Testament prophetic messages. Uh, That doesn't mean, however, that he's only limiting inspiration to what the Old Testament prophets spoke or wrote. Again, Peter connects these prophecies to Scripture, and he later uses that same word in connection with the writings of Paul in that same book, 2 Peter 3, verse 16. Now, all that to say, I don't see any of these passages limiting God's inspiration of the Bible to just a specific portion of his word. All of God's word was inspired. If you just joined us, that's Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book. We're glad you're on board for our question and answer segment. Renate says, in a recent conversation about Jonah, the question was raised, how could he possibly have survived inside that huge fish without oxygen for three days? 
So since Jesus refers to Jonah as a sign about his own time in the tomb, does it actually mean Jonah really died and the Lord resurrected him? Or did that great fish have an oxygen chamber in which Jonah was entombed for three days? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, John. We actually had another question almost identical by another listener. So I'm answering uh, Renate and this other listener at the same time. And uh, what I'd say is, uh, while some have suggested Jonah might have died and been resurrected, I don't believe that's required from the statement by Jesus. You know, Jesus's comparison there focuses on the length of time for each event, not on the issue of physical death. He said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, The fact that Jonah prayed from inside the fish in chapter 2, that suggests he was still alive and conscious during that time. Now, in terms of how he could survive that length of time, well, we're just not told. But I do see two details in chapter 1 that are helpful. First, it says God appointed the animal that swallowed Jonah. That suggests, I think, a special work on God's part. In fact, in chapter 4, that same word is used three more times. God appointed a vine to grow up. God appointed a worm to destroy the vine, and he appointed a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. And each of those focuses on God's direct intervention. And then second, the animal in 117 is described as a great fish. Now, that word can refer to anything that swims in the sea. In Genesis 1, the animals are divided into four broad categories, fish, birds, cattle, and animals that creep on the ground. So the fish that swallowed Jonah could have been a large whale, or it could have been some special large fish specifically prepared by God. But whatever it was, I believe Jonah was kept alive inside. In a recent sermon series on the book of Jonah, our pastor showed a PowerPoint slide with a beautiful image of a, just in the last 10, 15 years, a man who was actually swallowed by a whale. You see the guy in his mouth. It's very disturbing. And the guy survived. So uh, all of that to say, uh, God has his ways, but it's, it's not unheard of. All right, let's get to this question from Libby, who says, I have a friend very interested in history, as I am. We have the Bible, of course, but I'm wondering about the nation's history, that's Israel, throughout Scripture and, uh, and when Scripture ends. Maybe one book wouldn't contain all this information. Could you please recommend a book or books for us? Yeah, and I don't know one book that covers all the history, but I can recommend two books, and then I'll add a third for a bonus. Uh, The first book is Kingdom of Priests by Eugene Merrill. Uh, He does an excellent job of tracing Israel's history from Abraham through the post-exilic period. The second is a book called Who Owns the Land? Now, it was written originally by Stanley Ellison, and then I had the privilege of updating and revising it for Tyndale back 20 years ago in 2003. Now, sadly, both versions of the book are out of print, but you can usually find them for sale online. Uh, The book traces the history of Israel's involvement with the land from the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 through the early 2000s. And the third book, the bonus book, is also worth exploring. It's volume one of the Expositor's Bible Commentary series. Now, this uh, first volume has introductory articles that are very helpful. Uh, It talks about... uh, the cultural setting of the New Testament, uh, between the Testaments, chronology of the Old Testament, the chronology of the New Testament. Each article is about 20 to 30 pages long and contains a good summary of appropriate historical material. All right, Judy wants to know, can you please tell me what Matthew 6 verse 20 means when Jesus tells us to lay up your treasures in heaven? I don't understand what this means or how we lay up treasures in heaven. Your uh, kindness, your help is greatly appreciated. Well, I think Jesus answers the what of that question in verse 19 and then the why in verse 21. Uh, Laying up treasures in heaven is the opposite of verse 19 where he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. 
And then he talks about where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Uh, most people think security comes from amassing wealth and possessions here on earth, but anything we store up can be destroyed or stolen. He says we ought to focus instead on rewards that we're going to get in heaven. And it leads to two practical points. First, how do we do that? And he provides a potential answer in Matthew 19, 21. You know, a rich individual came and said, what do I need to do to receive eternal life? And Jesus talks about following God's law. And the man says, oh, I do that. And then Jesus said, well, sell your possessions and give them to the poor. And the problem was the man was very rich and didn't want to do that. He, he cared more for his possessions than he did for others. The bottom line is working hard, accumulating wealth aren't wrong, but we need to remember God wants us to use those resources to also meet the physical and spiritual needs of others. If you didn't hear your question today, it's time you got that thing emailed to us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. We're back with Charlie's devotional next. Living in the United States, you know what December 7th is. In Franklin Delano Roosevelt's own words, a day of infamy. But if we travel to Zechariah chapter 7, there's a different day of infamy. Is that right, Charlie? Uh, That's right, John. And that's the focus, I understand, of your devotional coming up. We'll get to that after this Holy Land experience. It's a testimony from somebody who's traveled to Israel and would like to share this reflection with you and me. Hi, I'm Jennifer, and this is my Holy Land experience. And um, the part that stands out for me is um, we went to see the Judean wilderness, which is totally not what I expected, Um, just the rough terrain and the hills. And and then we went to um, En Gedi. And then Charlie had mentioned that that might be where um, Naomi and Ruth made their trek up and over and then had to go clear across the wilderness to Jerusalem and I just thought how overwhelming that is and had no idea what they faced and it gave me such an appreciation for what they went through but also you know they had those obstacles and that adversity but they looked to God and he brought them through and um, it's just was such a lesson to me like if they can face that you know there's nothing I can't face with God. Well, we're quite familiar with our own day of infamy here in the United States. I'm intrigued, though, that the Israelis have their own version if we go back in ancient history, Charlie. They do. And, and uh, I want to start actually where you began. Uh, Monday, December 8, 1941, Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed a joint session of Congress to request a state of war be declared between the United States and Japan. And he began that message by saying, Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a day which will live in infamy, the United States was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. And since his speech, December 7 continues to be known as a day that lives in infamy. But most people don't know there's another event that took place on December 7 that also lived in infamy. This event happened 2,458 years before the attack on Pearl Harbor. It's not as well known today, though it's centered around God and the prophet Zechariah. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's head to Jerusalem on December 7, 518 B.C. December in Jerusalem can be cold and blustery, and the dark clouds scudding across the sky suggest rain might be on the way. The temple is finally being rebuilt, though 
it will still be another 15 months until the work is completed. In the first few verses of chapter 7, Zechariah introduces us to his December 7, the day about to live in infamy. It was, he says, the fourth year of King Darius, on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month Kislev. That's December 7, 518 B.C. On that very day, the inhabitants of Bethel, about 11 miles north of Jerusalem, sent a delegation to ask a question of the Lord. Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month, as I've done for so many years? Now, that's usually the point in the account where our eyes start to glaze over and we try to push on in the text to seek firmer footing for our chronologically, historically, and geographically challenged minds. We don't know the names of the months in the Hebrew calendar, nor do we know much about the Jewish days of fasting. In fact, in the next chapter, God has Zechariah remind the people that they had actually set up four specific days in four different months when they were to fast. In chapter 8, verse 19, God referred to them as the fasts of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months. Now, bear with me on this. The fast in the seventh month is the one fast God had commanded in his word. That was the fast on the Day of Atonement. Apparently, the people had also connected that fast to another event that had occurred about a year following the destruction of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar had installed Gedaliah as governor of the land and established his capital at Mitzpah, just north of Jerusalem. But in the seventh month, a man named Ishmael killed both Gedaliah and his Babylonian guards. The next day, Ishmael's forces killed an additional 80 men on their way to Jerusalem. They'd shaved off their beards and torn their clothes and cut themselves as a sign of mourning, either for the Day of Atonement or because of the destruction of the temple. They were on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So fasting on the seventh month made sense. But why were they also fasting on the fourth, fifth, and tenth months? According to Jeremiah 39, Nebuchadnezzar's forces finally breached Jerusalem's walls on the ninth day of the fourth month. And it was in the fifth month, the month of, when the temple was set ablaze. But what about the tenth month? Well, that particular date is mentioned four separate times by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel and by the compiler of 2 Kings. The tenth day of the tenth month was the day Nebuchadnezzar's army arrived outside Jerusalem, bent on conquest. It marked the beginning of the end for Judah and Jerusalem. All four dates commemorated bitter milestones in Jerusalem's rebellion against Babylon. The seventh month also included the one fast ordained by God, but now the people were perplexed. The fifth month especially commemorated the month the temple was burned and destroyed. However, a new temple was being erected. Should they continue to look back and mourn the events of the past? Or was this the time to bring closure to those events and instead look forward to a new temple and a new time of blessing? Though the delegation from Bethel only mentioned the fasts of the fifth month in chapter 7, the larger context lets us know they had the entire year-long cycle of fasts in mind. God's response through Zechariah involved both a rebuke and a promised blessing. First, the rebuke. When you fasted and mourned, for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? God peered into the hearts and minds of the people to uncover the real motives for their actions. Though they claimed that both their fasts and their feasts were done to honor God, they had really been done for the benefit of the people themselves. Their attitude needed an adjustment. From God's original message to the people prior to the Babylonian captivity, all the way up to the message from Zechariah and the other prophets in his day, God's expectations hadn't changed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. 
administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. A person's attitude of obedience to God will show up in how they treat those around them, especially those who are struggling and needy. God says that when he called to the earlier generation, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The message to the people in Zechariah's day was obvious. Don't go down the same road as your ancestors. God's rebuke is then followed by his promised blessing. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. And what about the different months with fasts? The fasts of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. God promises that Judah's days of infamy will someday become days of joy and gladness. But what does any of this have to do with us today? Well, we're coming into our own time of celebration when we focus on the birth of Jesus. But sadly, this can be a time of family stress, financial pressures, unfulfilled expectations, and even sadness and loneliness. We can get so busy focusing on the mechanics of the season, decorations, parties, cards, and gifts, that we lose sight of the one whose birth we're celebrating and the attitude that he wants us to display toward others. Paul said it best in Philippians 2, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This December, let's focus less on all the activities and more on demonstrating mercy, compassion, and joy to others. Smile at the harried store workers and wish them a heartfelt Merry Christmas. Put something in the Salvation Army collection kettle and thank the volunteers for giving of their time. Turn your stress on its head by deliberately focusing on being a blessing to others rather than satisfying yourself. Over the next three weeks, work to make each day one that will be remembered by those you meet as a time of blessing rather than a day that lives on in infamy. Great passage and great application. Thank you, Charlie. Let's hang on to that all season long. Our time is gone, but we want to say thank you to you for listening to The Land of the Book. Thank you to this station for providing airtime. I'm John Geiger for our host, Charlie Dyer. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.